Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Could you turn to someone around you and say good morning to them, if you don't mind? You can shake their hand if you're comfortable doing that, if you don't want to be touched. I understand. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. If they've just sneezed before I got up here and talked, then you probably don't want to touch, and you just kind of fist bump or something like that. Welcome to the fourth week of the book of James, and we are excited about working through the book of James up till the first Sunday of December when we start Advent with you. But today we are going to talk about judgment and mercy, and so we'll be in the book of James chapter 2, starting with verse 1. But before we do that, we will read the last two verses of chapter 1, 26 and 27, kind of as a refresher to kind of get us in the right frame of mind as we um, go from uh, what we talked about last week to this week also. Now, let me tell you a few things about James. This is the fourth week. At first, we started about who is James, and I think it's important to understand who he is and that him being the half-brother of Jesus. And we know, and we've kind of reiterated this each week, that Through Jesus' ministry on earth, prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, James did not believe in the deity of Christ. We always said that when your brother comes to you and says, I'm deity, you look at him and say, you know, go tell that story to someone else. And so, yet he did not believe, but yet after that, he does believe to the point that James dies a martyr's death. So we understand who he is. Then the week after that, that Chris came and did a marvelous job talking to us about the difference between temptation and trial, and God never tempts his children to sin And then the week after that, last week, we talk about being hearers and doers. And so the overarching thread that we find through the book of James, because it is a book that we struggle with sometimes because of its practicality in our life, this overarching uh, thread that we find is that James is about trusting in progress, not perfection. And I, I think you have to color everything with that brush as we talk about this over the next few weeks together, as now it's getting really practical in our lives, and that is that it is about trusting in progress and not perfection in your life. And so I think that really makes the room a little more comfortable with the subject that we're going to cover today, that we're not looking, or James is not talking about perfection, but he's talking about progress in our life, but that is going to challenge us. Because what is progress? We talk about that. We use that word when it comes to our spiritual journey. But what is, what is really progress in our life? Well, a couple of things that we have gleaned thus far about that. And one is progress is a result of a deeper understanding of the nature and the character of God. It's a result of, the, of a deeper understanding of the nature and the character of God. That is that God never tempts his children to sin, but God is always for us, and God is never against us in this life. That God is about our joy, not always happiness. Yes, he wants us to be happy, but God is about joy because joy is long-lasting. It's not dependent on the circumstances around us. So we have this deeper understanding of the nature and the character of God is, uh, is what simply helps us in the progress of our spiritual journey. The second thing is this, that progress results from a deeper understanding of how God sees us. We talked about that for a, a while last week, that we are the first fruits of his creatures, meaning that you and I are the down payment of that, of the culmination of the redemptive work of Christ when he returns and makes all things right, that we are the down payment of that. Thus, that's our identity. It's not the things that we've done in life. It's not all the mistakes that we have made, but the identity of our life is we are the first fruits of his creatures. Creatures, And in light of that, what we realize is that apply, how that applies to progress in my life is that rules never bring transformation. 
that if I give you a book of rules and I say, here, this is, this is what's going to help you to be a better person, and this is what's going to help you, this is the catalyst of your life to transition you into the person that God wants you to be, it doesn't. But what brings transformation in our life is the beauty of who we are to come. That is what brings transformation in all our lives. And the third thing we discovered is that progress results from a deeper understanding of the power of the gospel to transform our lives. That... We are called not to be just hearers only, but to be doers also. And so what we discovered is this, that it's not enough just to come here and hear. It's not enough in our life to just come here and hear the words, to be challenged by the scriptures in, in, in the best way that we possibly can do that. But we have to hear and embrace the gospel, and that brings transformation because... James uses the word deceived an awful lot because it's very easy to be deceived by just thinking that when I hear things, that's enough. But what James says is this, that you got to also do that, embrace that, apply that to your very life. So as I read through James over and over through this process, and I thought about all the topics that we're going to discuss I think it's important, and it's the best way for me to kind of illustrate this for you this morning in, in kind of relating this to being a father and how James speaks to you and I. Because as a father, you know, or if you, well, back up for a minute. If you've grown up in a home or you're growing up in a home where you have this loving and you have this giving father, this good father, then when he, you know, when he warns you of something, when he says, don't do this or do that, that what we realize it's always an invitation is really what that is. And here's what I mean, that when I warn my children, what I'm actually saying to them is that, well, what I'm not saying is this is not an opportunity for me to flex my muscles or my authority as your father. That's not what this is about. But my warning is to keep you safe. Don't do this. Why? Because I want you to be safe. Do this because I want you to walk in the fullness of joy and the fullness of life that you possibly can. We don't warn our children as loving fathers because we want to somehow flex the muscle and authority that we have. No, we warn them because we want to invite them into something better within their life. That is the book of James. Because you can read this book a couple of ways. You can read this book and think, oh, it's this therapeutic approach to the behavioral aspects of my life. And so what James is, James is like this five-chapter counseling session about how I should just be a better person and change my behavior. You can look at it that way. Or you can look at it in a way that it's very critical of everything that I do, and everything that I do is wrong, and I'll never meet up to any of these rules and all these kind of regulations that James lays out and exposes all these things that I'm doing, and it really is like a giant guilt trip for me. And I want you to understand how... First of all, understand the nature of God, and God moved upon James to write this book, so that helps us to understand what is going on here. And it's this, it's an invitation to something better. Realize that. It's an invitation to something better in your life. Yes. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, my life couldn't really get any better, then wow, that is absolutely wonderful. And I'm so glad that you are there and, and, and we weren't aware that we had angels. We were entertaining them unaware, the scripture says, and we are glad that you're here. But no, what I realized is I want something better. I, I want change in my life and I want transformation and I want growth and I want progress and process in, in my life. And so that's the book of James. So let's go to verse 26 of chapter 1 for a moment. Let's read, kind of gets this frame in the frame of mind for 
from last week to move on to what we're going to talk about today. If anyone thinks he is religious, now here's the thing, that word religious, not a bad word right there. We use the word religion today and it sort of has this bad connotation to us as this dry and lifeless kind of Morale, duty driven morality of our life. No, but what this means, this is talking about faith. This is not dead orthodoxy, but this is genuine faith. And so you could almost say this if anyone thinks he has or he or thinks he is religious or has genuine faith and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, it says. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what James is talking about, and you can make a note of this, he's talking about the law of love and the law of liberty. Because Jesus demands his followers, he demands some things from his followers. And I know that when I say those, ter- those terms together, Jesus demands, you think, wait a minute, Jesus never really demands, Jesus only suggests, right? And so we have this view of Jesus sometimes as somehow that he is, has these fairy wings and he's sprinkling holy dust on us and that's how he leads us through life. I want to say to you something this morning and understand that because I think it's important. Jesus does demand things from his followers. If we're to look at him as the good father, then what we have to realize is that he does demand things from his followers. That is important for us to understand. It's not that he's suggesting these things in 26 and 27 that we just read, but he's demanding, oh, but Mark, wait a minute, justification is by faith and grace alone. I know that, but these are demands. And what we just read is a summary of those demands that God has given us. And those demands are this, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, specifically those that are poor and vulnerable, cannot help themselves. And he says this, to love your neighbor and and as you love yourself, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart or all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your spirit. That is the royal command. It's important that you understand James in light of those things because James is writing to these people who have dispersed out of Jerusalem. They're being persecuted after the stoning of Stephen and they're going out through all the known world. They're planting churches and, and, and they're spreading the gospel, yet they're jacked up just as much as you are, and, and they're struggling with a lot of things within their life in that process of walking that dirt road of sanctification, just as you and I are, absolutely. But yet what, what this question James is posing them is this. He's posing them this. He's saying, hey, I want to ask you something because I want you to look at your life, whether you're not a Christian or, or not. He said, I really want you to ask those questions about your life. Because you really have to look at what you're doing and are you fulfilling these obligations? Because when you look at the things that James is saying, they're not really serious about loving the Lord and they're definitely not serious about loving their neighbor. And the result of not loving God and not loving your neighbor is this this dry, orthodox type of religion and where all the life is sucked out of that and there's no liberty at all. Absolutely no liberty at all. Because where you're not loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and where you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, then there is no liberty in your life. Interesting thought, isn't it? 
that I thought it was just coming to church. That's really what I thought. I thought it was just coming here, hanging out, listening to Mark talk to me for about 45 minutes every Sunday morning, having some great worship and some donuts and some coffee and all those kind of things. And I thought, and that's exactly what James says. Hey, it's more than that. Understand it. It's more than that. There is a better way. There is something better. That is what this is all about. And all the things that James talks about are anger. And he talks about our covetousness. He talks about discrimination. He talks about favoritism. He talks talks about all those things. All of those things are simply this. He is saying, hey, there is something better. Understand it. It's an invitation to something better in my life, in your life. Realize that. That is the invitation of James for you and I this morning. And, and when you kind of wrap it with that wrapper, oh, it, it says, oh, this God really wants something better for me. God is really uh, about about me growing and in this process of, of spiritual growth in my life. That's really what God wants in my life. That's really what he wants. Yes, it is. So for the next 13 verses as we go through this morning, we're going to talk about the what, the why, and we're going to talk about the better way. And so we start reading. We start with the what, and we start reading in James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality. Underline those words. I underline that. I italicize that. Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man, look what it says, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and says, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, the what of what James is teaching us is this, don't show partiality. Don't show partiality. Don't. You say, Mark, it already said that. You know, I, I, could, I could read that. You don't have to tell me that that's the why of don't show partiality. But can I, for a moment with you, tease that out a little bit for us to understand it? Yes. Because for the majority of my life, when I have heard this text taught or preached in a sermon that partiality has always been seen as favoritism. Now, hold on for a minute. And, and in my view, that we have done a very soft sell, a soft sell of what James is really teaching us here. Because we've kind of branded this as just favoritism. But if you, in, but if you really look at it in light of the text... It's talking about that we are choosing favorites predicated on that of an outward appearance of a man or a woman. So in reality, in the purity of what James is teaching, partiality in this text is not as much about favoritism as it is about discrimination. Man. I heard one come on. Okay, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yes, I know. Just hang on. It gets better, okay? Trust me, it does. So just hold on. Don't leave. Don't think, hmm, man, you know what? Huh, you know, it's getting real late, and the uh, kids, you know, it's real early in the morning, okay? You just got out of bed, so hang on. You've had plenty of coffee. You're all good. It is going to get better. It is about, really about discrimination. We soft sell what James is teaching us if we just say, oh, this is about favoritism. It's about discrimination, and that's a word that actually takes us to a whole different place. It is. It's, it says that we, we are not to withhold or give glory, love, affection, hospitality, friendship, mercy, kindness. 
kindness or service to people based upon their external appearance. No, the, the way that we treat others as Christians is not determined by, and I made a list, economic class, age, clothing, weight, gender, skin color, or attractiveness. He says, do not show partiality, do not discriminate. Understand that. And we fight. We struggle with this pull in our hearts all the time. You, said, you may sit there and say, Mark, I really don't ever have a problem with any of that. But if you look at your life and all the details of your life, you're going to find that at times you do. Because why? Because we always drift toward people that are like us. Yes. Because there's always people in our life that are like us that are much easier to love Absolutely, there are always people that are easier to love, and then there are people that are somewhat different in us that it takes more work to love them. Yes, that person sitting next to you that you said good morning to could be the person in your life that it takes more work to love them. It could be. Yes, Mark, I'm married to them. That's exactly what I mean, right? Yes. Because you know them better than you know anybody else in the room, most likely. And it takes a lot to love that individual. I want to flesh this out because later on in our text, James talks about the wealthy and he talks about the poor. So here is what I wanted to say to you. If you're wealthy and you tend to drift toward wealthy people who are in the same circle as you are, the Bible, what it's doing here, it's giving you a warning with an invitation. Resist that kind of behavior. Resist that kind of behavior because it's an invitation to something better in your life. And I say that about the wealthy because James talks about that in a few moments and we'll kind of explain that and we'll give you a little better, I think, understanding of what he's saying. But he says, fight that tendency just to be drawn to people like you. Wow. Because that's our comfortable place, isn't it? Sure it is. We are comfortable around people that are like us, that like the things that we like, that look like us, that dress like us, that maybe live in a, a neighborhood similar to ours and have the same, same thoughts about political things and all those kinds of deals that, that we're drawn to that. And, and what James is saying, fight that temptation, fight that temptation and be drawn to something better in your life is what he's saying. But why? You know, I'm glad you asked that question. I really am because that's the next thought. But Why? It is the why. The why is always much more complicated than the what. It is. It's always much more complicated than the what. And and, and here's my thought. Listen, if if you have children or if you have ever been a child, now that covers everybody in the room, right? Isn't isn't it? Yes. If you have children or ever you've ever been a child, then the what is this. And and I thought, well, here's a way I could explain it. The what is take off your muddy shoes before you come into this house. Yeah. What is your child's response? Why? You know why, right? Why? Why? Because it takes, you know, and their child says to you, why? It takes so much time to take my shoes off. I'm going to miss all this other opportunity to play. And all I have to do is come in and go to the bathroom. And, and you know, why, why, why? And what is your gut reaction as a parent? When your child says why to you, what is your gut reaction? What do you want to say? Because I said so. Very good. You passed the test. I was afraid that no one would say that this morning. Thank you. You have assured me that we're all human because that's exactly what I would have said so. I I, I would have said, because I said so. Why do we say because I said so? Because the why is always more complicated than the what. It is. It's easy for me to say to Grayson, hey, because I said so, 
than to say to Grayson, listen, you got to take off your shoes, son, because if you don't take off your shoes, you're going to track mud through all the house, and then we have to deal with your mom. This is about self-preservation for me also. You need to understand that. Because if not, then your mom morphs into some alien life form and we don't want to have to deal with that. Understand that. So you know, you don't say that. You just say, hey, because I said so. That is it. Because I don't want to go through all of that explanation. So the why is much more difficult. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it's, more, it's more complex. The what is don't show partiality. Don't discriminate. Don't do that. Don't, don't discriminate on outward appearance. It's a warning to an invitation. But here is the why. Here it is, verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Stop there for a minute. We always get stuck on that part. Poor in the world. What is he really meaning? And from contextually what we believe he is meaning, he is talking about that of spiritual poverty. Remember that James is a commentary of the Sermon on the Mount that we find back in the book of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So in light of that and being a commentary of the Sermon on the Mount, it's about those that are of, of spiritual poverty. It's talking about humility, meekness, a deep awareness of our need for God within my life. He says, bless are the poor in spirit. And, and so that's who he's talking about. But here's what he says, that has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. The why is this. Why show partiality? Or, or why, if we show partiality, here's what he says happens. We dishonor God and we dishonor our brother. We dishonor God and we dishonor our brother. Oh, here's the tough part. Thus revealing that we don't understand the gospel. That we don't understand the gospel. We don't. You know, growing up, <clears throat> that I played Little League Baseball, and, and, I, and I wasn't like, I didn't grow up in the caveman era, so don't go there because I'm not that old. Understand that, okay? But, but, you know, when we talked about organized sports back then, it was like peewee football and it was uh, Little League Baseball. They didn't have all the club sports that they have today. I don't remember those things. So we kind of made things happen. If you've ever seen Sandlot, the movie, it's a great movie. It's where we get that term, you're killing me, Smalls. I don't know if you've ever said that or not, but look it up, Google it. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's, it is a great movie. And, and so we kind of made things happen in our neighborhood. And, and here's the difference. We actually went outside to play, okay? I don't, I don't, I'm just saying that, but we actually went outside, left the, the house and went outside to play. And, and I say that thinking, you know, wow, it's real different in, in our day with video games and those kinds of things. And, and so, you know, interesting thing about video games, can I tell you this useless piece of information, maybe for you, parents will probably not like me after I say this, but um, our son Grayson, who is at the Citadel, he was at the joint uh, air, air base in Charleston with the Navy this week. And so he sent us a picture standing behind a F-18 Hornet and he's talking to the pilot of that F-18 Hornet. And the pilot said that some of the best, best pilots in the fighter pilots in the Navy today are kids who grew up playing what? Video games. That's a lie. <laughs> Somebody just said up front, that's a lie. 
<laughs> and, and I just dismissed that. I deleted that because I don't believe that either. And so anyway, it was kind of funny. And so going back to what we're talking about, so, so we would choose teams, you know, when we played. We would choose teams. And, and so when you got together as this big group out in the yard or wherever, then the first step was to what? You had to choose two captains. And there was always some providential power at work there that two people always emerged from the group as being the captains. And no one usually questioned that, you know, because they were usually the best athletes. So you choose captains. And then what followed that is this daunting task of selecting teams and destroying other people's self-worth. You know, that's what kind of followed after that, right? And when I bring you to that moment, I can feel the pain level in the room begin to rise, right? Because you've been there. Yes. And so they begin to pick, and they pick those that are most talented first. And, 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 and then what happens is that there's always those that are left last. You know, you're kind of like the ones that nobody else wants. And, and I was sort of like... I was sort of like that guy that was always the last, me and the kid that broke his leg the week before, you know, those are the two of us left and they chose him. And so, and, and, and so I was kind of always the last. What I think is funny about justice though, God has a way of kind of flipping things around on it that, that usually those guys that were the captains, you know what, they're, they're now working for the guys that were the last guys chosen, you know, kind of deal. God has a way of kind of doing that in life at times and, and so the, it had a way of really being destructive because it was chose on, you know, the choice was made upon your athletic ability before anything else. That those were going to be good enough to win. There has never been an example of something being anti gospel as clear as that is, as clear as that is. Never. Never. Because that's not how God works. This is important to understand, I believe, in this thing of partiality. And then we're at the why because we dishonor God and our brother and we, don't, and, and we don't really understand the gospel if we're showing partiality, if we're discriminating against others. That we really don't understand the gospel. We don't. Because if God was after the best, the smartest, the most attractive, and the wealthiest, well, look around the room for a moment, okay? Just look around the room. There'd be no Christians here, right? There would be no Christians here if that's who God was absolutely after. And you say, well, Mark, you know, I'm looking around the room right now, and I'm probably in the top 2%, you know, of the room. And so I'm just kind of saying that in a very humble way. You know, I could have said 1%, but I'm saying 2% and a little margin for error. And, and so, yeah, and, and I want to say to you, well, show me all the men and the women have simply come to Christ because of your awesomeness then. Show me that. Because I think that one of the greatest things I can do and say to you on repeat Week after week, I think is, and, and love me after this, is that you're not all that awesome. Okay? All right? That you're not all that awesome. Because you not being awesome creates the space where God can flex His might and His power in your life. And it becomes about Him and not you. And when it's about him and not you, it results in joy for you. Did you know that? I wrote this down. It's football season, so I have to make a football reference this morning. So hang on, okay? It's a, that, that, that God's team 
I tried to use this team that would, you know, I'm not talking about Clemson, Georgia, or Carolina, okay? So just breathe, all right? So understand that, okay? Here's the thing. that Or Michigan, for some of you in this room, too. That, that God's team does not look like the Alabama Crimson Tide. It does not. Now, that probably offended somebody in the room. Get over it, okay? All right? But it does not. It's just a game. Understand that it's just a game. It's entertainment. And so it it doesn't look like the Alabama Crimson Tide. Here's what God's team looks like. Their their quarterback, I love his name. His name is Tua. He is a Samoan. One of their quarterbacks, he's a Samoan, and he is absolutely amazing. God's team looks like Tua, the quarterback, and me. That's what it looks like, okay? That's what God's team looks like. Yes, because he's awesome and I'm just here, okay? That's exactly what his team looks like. And so it's all about him because he's always enough because he chose us. He chose me. I didn't choose him. He chose me. That is how God chooses his team. So I stopped looking at myself and navel-gazing, as we always call it. And what I realized is this, that I make a lousy Savior, that it's about him. It's not about my awesomeness. It's not about my awesomeness. It's not because I make a lousy Savior. Look at, verse, look at 1 Corinthians for a moment, getting away from James. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that, look what it says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What a powerful verse. Yes, we were not saved because of how awesome we are. We were not saved because of how awesome we are. Thus, our demand that others meet our criteria of awesomeness is anti-gospel. It is. That we make ourselves the standard. And when that person next to you, who you said good morning to, who maybe sometimes is a struggle for you to love, when that person next to you doesn't meet the standard of your life or someone else doesn't meet the standard of your life, because you have made yourself the standard in your own awesomeness, can I tell you that's absolutely clearly contrary to the gospel and the teachings of Christ? Completely. It's outside of how God saved you. It's outside of how God saved me. Realize that. And what it does, it creates this level of hypocrisy within our life when we are a racist or when we're judging people around us because they're so different in us than us, when we look at people in a different socioeconomic status and we place ourselves above them, when you show favoritism to people who are more easily to love than to other people around you, you're working against the very heart of God. Because when God saw you, you were in rebellion to Him. You were in sin to Him. You were that guy. He reached down. He stepped into the very mess and the muck and the mire of your life. And He pulled you up and He rescued you and He brought you into this kingdom. Anything outside of that, how you treat other people around you, is anti-gospel. James chapter 2, verse 6, okay? Because I have to get finished here. But you have dishonored the poor man. Not only have you dishonored God, but you've dishonored your brother. 
He said, are not the rich... This is why I talked about the wealthy for a moment. And we'll kind of put this in, 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 in the proper light in a moment. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the, the honorable name by which you are called? James' accusation toward you and I, the church, right in the middle of all of this... He says, you and the church, you, the church, you have, you have so, uh, you want to be so loved and accepted and applauded and seen as normal in the world in which I have planted you. God is saying through James is this, that you dishonor your eternal brother. You cozy up with those that belittle the name of the Lord and mock the name of the Lord and make life difficult for you. You simply find yourself, you, you find yourself moving toward those he's saying to those in this text that have been your abusers and your oppressors because you want, to be, uh, you want to be accepted and you want to be seen as normal in the world around you. Can I tell you, the marginalization that occurs because we love Christ should never be run from. The church is simply meant to be different because we are pointing people to a better way. We're pointing people to a better way. Yeah. We're never going to make Jesus so cool that everybody thinks he's cool. It's not going to happen, okay? Because once we do that, he's no longer Christ, but he's a figment of our imagination. There has to be a countercultural edge to that of being a Christian. Understand that because if we're not countercultural, not anti-cultural, but if we're not countercultural, showing people a better way, then we are not the church, the big C. We are not the bride and the body of Christ, that there is a better way and we are pointing people to that better way. We are. And when James talks about rich people and wealthy people, you need to frame that the right way because some of you, it makes you uncomfortable for some of you, you, you had your keys for your BMW laying out on the seat right beside you this morning, and you kind of reached over and you slid them back in your pocket because you didn't want anybody to see that, right? No, and you're going to wait for everybody to leave before you go out there and get in your new car. That is not what he's talking about at all. No, that's not. And you need to realize that. He's not saying take your favoritism off of the rich and put your favoritism on the poor instead of despising the poor you're going to despise the rich that is not what he's saying he is saying do not show partiality to anyone rich or poor black or white whether they're from your side of town or the other side of town and we live in Anderson. Come on, we know. I hear the things that are said. You know, we say all those things in jest sometimes. We really do. And, and I've heard people say, well, I live on that other side of town or the wrong side. Of town. No, he's saying don't show partiality to anybody for anything. But it's simply what Christ is saying to you and I is love like I love. The what? Do not show partiality. The why? Dishonors God and your brother. Now the better way. See, I told you to get better, okay? Hang on, it's going to get better. Here's the better way. The last thing as we finish all this up, verse 8, it says this, if you really fulfill the royal law, that is the essence of all of God's demands through Christ to us, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. If you want to please the heart of the Lord, do what the Lord demands of us to do. And that is that we love him with everything that we have and we love our neighbor.
neighbor as ourselves, And it's a warning with an invitation to a better way. Because God is not trying to flex his might and flex his muscles in this as being our loving father. But he's inviting you and I into something better. He is. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And a lot of people struggle with these passages. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And I think what happens is this. I think we come to church, we sometimes choose a church of a certain size so we can kind of blend and hide sometimes. It makes us feel good when we come. We clap, and I want you to be here. Please, please, please be here. That is very important. But you clap, you raise your hands, you even regurgitate some things that have been said during the week because you remember something that's been said. And the middle, in the middle of all of that that goes on in our life, we justify. We justify. We hear sermons like what we're talking about today, partiality and that of favoritism and discrimination. But then we say, but hey, you know what? But I've never killed anybody. You know, I've heard people say that all the time. Listen, don't be so hard on me. I've never killed anyone, you know, is exactly what he's saying. And here is James's point. He simply says this in a very loving way. So what? that you've not committed murder or adultery. If you've discriminated, if you've shown partiality, if you are a racist, if you avoid the poor, if you've broken the royal law, then you have sinned against God and you have sinned against your brother. There you are. You scared me. I looked over there and saw you. Should we sit for a moment and think about it? That's heavy, isn't it? Mark, why did you choose James? I don't know. I just prayed over it, and I felt that that was the Lord's direction for us. Why? Because God knows us. He knows the word that we need in this moment of our life. He knows us. And I think we begin to justify this in a lot of ways. You know, I've never, I've never murdered anybody. I've, I've never broken any really big law. I have a couple of points on my driver's license. But, you know, everybody else was driving fast around me. I don't understand why they picked me out, you know. What was it? It's probably because I'm a Christian and they just wanted to persecute me or something like that, you know. And so I don't really understand. And we justify those things. Can I get really serious with you? I mean, we justify, dude, you know what? I, I'm not running around wearing a sheet over my head and burning a cross in people's front yards. I'm not doing that. So, but you know, I, I do have this feeling toward this person or, or I do have this feeling toward this race and, and I do... Can't, listen. Stop it. That's what James is saying. James is saying, stop. Take a moment and pause. Look at your life for what it really is. James is really saying to us, label yourself correctly. That's what he's saying. Label yourself correctly. Because if you are doing these things, if you're showing favoritism, partiality, discrimination, 
then you're sinning against your brother, you're sinning against God, and you really do not understand the gospel. Why? Because you've been coming and sitting for years, but you've never been a doer of the word. Why do you struggle being a doer of the word? Because you don't understand, you don't understand the character and the nature of God and who he is, that he loves you, he is for you, he is never against you. You don't understand how he sees you, that you are the first fruit of his creatures, you are the down payment, that is your that's your destiny, that is your identity, and we don't understand that, and so we don't submit ourselves to God. Because God is saying to us, in a moment where these are really, really tough words to us, He is saying, this is about a better way for you in your life. This is about a better way. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's saying. Speak and act, not hearers only, but to hear and do. Because God wants there to be this blinking light in your life this morning, as there has been in mine, as I've been reading through the book of James, saying, hey, there's something wrong. There's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem here. And if you're sitting here this morning, in, in, in the greatest amount of love that I can ever say to you, if you're sitting here and you say, Mark, none of this really interests me at all, then I would have to say to you, please define yourself correctly and stop calling yourself a Christian. Stop it. But Mark, I can't be perfect. This is not about perfection. Don't use that. Don't justify where you are by using that this morning. Don't don't do that because we've said, we've talked about this. This is about progress in your life. This is exactly, what does genuine faith look like? First, I tell you what genuine faith does not look like. Genuine faith in our life does not look like perfection. Because we're leaning into God's perfection. So that God sees us through the perfection of His Son. So it's not about my perfection at all. But what what genuine faith looks like is this. It looks like progress in my life. It looks like me sitting down with the Lord and saying, God, search my heart. Search my life. I know these things about me, God. I know these things about my life. So search my heart. And when you illuminate by the Holy Spirit these things in my life, then I lay them at your altar. I lay them before you. I'm doing something. I'm crying out for help. I, I, I'm trusting you to help me through this issue of my life. That is progress. And that is the picture of genuine faith. It's not that you have it all together. Because this life is, a, is like a dirt path to sanctification. It is. But are you addressing, am I, as, as a Christian, am I addressing those areas of my life that should be addressed? Or am I just hearing these words and walking away from them? And as James said last week, we forget. And that word has nothing to do with memory, but it has everything to do with you just discard those things. And I don't want to do that. It's too painful. And I don't want to face that. I don't want to talk about that with the Lord. 
I'm ashamed of that. I feel guilty about that. And we go back to his nature and character that he is a loving father who is for us and never against us. So what do you struggle with this morning? What do you struggle with this morning? Verse 13 says, For judgment was without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Such a powerful, powerful statement. And what, what James does is he takes what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount and he flips it all the way around. Because Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James says, God will judge us all. And if you don't show mercy, then God will not show you mercy. That's exactly what he says. And then he ends with this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because genuine faith is about mercy. It's about we show the mercy that God has shown us to others. The better way is to remember the victory of God's mercy in your own life and be merciful to others. To be merciful to others. You know what James is? And, and, you know, I prayed through this this week, and I thought, Lord, how do I end this? You know, this is kind of a crazy teaching to end. I don't know how to end this, so I'm kind of working this out right now. God and I are having this conversation, and I say, okay, Lord, how do I land the plane? You know, you, you taught me how to take this off, but I'm not sure I have the directions to land this this morning. And so I, I wrote this down. James is like an, uh, like an MRI. You know, you ever, you ever had an MRI? I don't know if you ever had one or not. At some point, you may have to have one, you know? It's where they strap you to this table and they tell you to be calm and they play music from somebody else's playlist that you don't want to hear and right and then they shove you in this tube and it's a lot of fun isn't it and then all of a sudden it's like somebody up on top of this tube is dropping rocks the whole time all around you and it's making this noise and you don't know what that is and you're and, and you're wondering did I forget to tell them that I have something metal in my body because it's going to rip it straight out of my body right in the middle of all of this And I'm going to die in this tube, okay? And it's painful. You hate it, but you love it. Because I don't know what's wrong with me unless I'm put inside that tube. So, how do I... I wrote this... I can't actually celebrate health. I can't actually celebrate health or get help without the scan. And I wrote with an exclamation point, feel the weight of James. Feel the weight of James. It's a loving father. inviting us to a better way in life. Amen. Bow your heads for a moment with me. Father, this morning, as we have talked about a subject, Lord, that is sensitive yet so needed to be discussed in our lives, that of discrimination and that of favoritism, And Lord, as you, as a loving Father who invites us to a better way, 
place this in the heart of book in the heart of James to write this for us today in the day in which we live so that as the church that there is a countercultural edge to how we live life and that as Christians we see the world differently as recipients of mercy we show mercy to others. We live our life in relationship with others in the light of the mercy that you have shown us, Father. Because you didn't choose us in the most beautiful moments of our life, and you didn't choose us in the times when we had everything together and we were the most organized. You didn't choose us when we were on target and meeting all our goals, but you chose us when we were broken and sinful, lost and wandering, confused, locked in shame and guilt, you chose us. And in light of that, we love the world through that mercy and through that grace that you have lavished on us. Father, today is not about perfection, but it's about progress in our lives. So today, may we see you as the good Father who is for us, and we lay the things in our life that need to be laid at your feet, we lay them down, beginning today. And we trust you, we trust you for a better way in our life this morning. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, work in our lives. Work in our hearts this morning in a powerful way. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Would you stand with us, please? For a moment of meditation and heart search. For a time to allow the words to penetrate your heart this morning during this song. Please feel free to pray. Take a moment with the Lord. If you want to stand at your seat, Wonderful. If that's where you're comfortable. If you want to come to the front, absolutely feel comfortable to do that. But lay these things at his feet this morning. Because that is the sign of genuine faith. Not perfection, but progress.